brothers, it is a great honor and privilege uh, to stand before you today and open God's word to you. It has been a blessing to worship Christ with you. Uh, something of, a, of an immense privilege to sit at the front and hear all the voices coming down this direction. Uh, what a preview of heaven this will be, exulting all together in the great mercy and grace of Christ to us. Let's pray as we go to his word again. Father, we do stand in awe of your love to us, the grace of Christ to us, the fellowship and consolation of the Holy Spirit even in us. And we rejoice and we pray that we could give some return of praise, not only by our mouths, but in our hearts, for what we know that you have rescued us from and delivered us unto. We pray that you would continue to grant that spirit of awe and worship as we come again to your word, to rejoice in it, to see our Savior for us in it, and to learn of our duty and be exhorted to it with joy and gladness. I pray that you would help me to show Christ faithfully, to represent your word accurately, that the men may worship over it as you deserve. I pray that you would change us into the image of Christ even more now in this hour so that we will leave more equipped with greater capacity to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ in our labors in ministry. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, one of the most clearly revealed truths in the entire New Testament is that the Christian's life will be marked by affliction. For the true follower of Jesus, who is living in a world that hated Jesus, suffering and tribulation and persecution and conflict are inevitable. That comes as no surprise to anyone who has been paying attention to the world we're living in. The culture that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to minister to has barreled through the checkpoints of moral degradation and divine abandonment at breakneck speed. Our society hates God. They're very religious, but they hate God. We live in a culture whose members are absolutely intoxicated with the prospect of self-deification. In fact, the sacraments of this secular religion demonstrate that the members of our society want to be God. Think about those sacraments. Transgenderism, the latest among them. The reprobate mind that concludes that a man can be a woman if he feels like it. God is not the determiner of your gender and identity. You are. You create male and female in your image, you have to do what feels right for you. And don't let anybody, least of all your creator, tell you different. Homosexuality. We will define marriage how we see fit. And we will criminalize any attempt to help someone mortify their sexual desires and repent of their homosexual behavior. 
God will not dictate to us what marriage is or is not. We will define marriage. We will define holiness and healthy sexuality. And the preeminent social injustice of our day, perhaps the chief sacrament of the culture of death, abortion. God confers life and dignity to his image bearers. And yet the culture of death, prostituting the cause of women's rights, dogmatically declares that the life in the womb is not a living person unless the mother wants it to be. You are the determiner of your identity. You create male and female, not God your creator. You define marriage, not God the creator of marriage. You determine life and personhood, not God the creator of all life. These are our society's fledgling attempts at self-deification. Man's rebellious hallucination that he is creator and Lord. And even if they're not transgender even if they're not homosexual, even if they have no interest in killing their children, the rest of our society must support these attempts at self-deification, lest they be confronted with the futility and fantasy of their own designs to flee the lordship of Christ. If there's an absolute standard by which transgender perversion is judged to be immoral then there's an absolute standard by which my perversion is judged to be immoral. I'm accountable to the God whose law sets that standard. But that can't be. Okay, fine. Men can be women. Anything. So long as I can sin in peace. Add to that the utter chaos, the reality that If you resist the cultural totalitarianism of the secular religion, the rulers and governors of this society will come after your church. Grace Church had our own battle with the state of California and the county of Los Angeles last year. Our brother James Coates spent a month in jail for gathering the Lord's people on the Lord's day. Our culture has never been so hostile to the gathering of God's people as it is right now. And it seems our churches have never been so eager to submit to the lordship of Caesar and to close their doors in search of less risky times to obey Christ's command not to forsake the assembly. Pretty soon we'll be told that opposing transgenderism, homosexuality, and abortion is a public health crisis. Because identifying such practices as sins which merit the judgment of God causes mental anguish or incites violence. Give Caesar the keys to your church and don't be surprised if before too long you show up to church and find the doors locked. And on top of all of that, that goes on in the world, the church also faces unique threats from within within its own walls. Satan not only attacks the church from the outside, he aims to corrupt the church from the inside. And brothers, we've heard of it several times this week already. There is a partnership taking place today between many so-called evangelical leaders and churches and a worldview that is absolutely antithetical to Christianity, antithetical to the gospel, and antithetical to Scripture. 
And whether you call that critical theory or wokeness or the social justice movement or liberation theology, it is tearing evangelicalism apart. It's stirring up dissension by teaching Christians to regard one another according to the flesh, to find their identity in their victimhood rather than in Christ alone, to nurse bitterness over the grievances they've suffered, and to demand that other Christians repent for their complicity in sins they haven't committed but for which they are guilty because they belong to a particular class of people. It's lunacy. It's racism in the name of anti-racism. It is injustice in the name of justice. And because evangelicals are rightly concerned not to appear to be against anti-racism or against justice, they submit to these postmodern redefinitions of biblical concepts in order to appease the culture. And it is into this evangelicalism, drowning in the sea of syncretism, and it is into this corrupt culture, hell-bent on its own self-deification, it's into this church and this world that the Lord Jesus Christ has sent you and me to minister the word of God. And I wonder if there aren't some of us who survey this bleak landscape and are tempted to discouragement. If there aren't some who say, Lord, couldn't I have served you in some other circumstances? When the culture stood less opposed to the gospel, when the the church had stronger leaders to guard against idolatry, when the government wasn't arresting pastors and suing churches, couldn't I have another time? And I just want to plead with you, brothers, don't think like that. We can look at the chaos and be tempted to discouragement, but God is and always has been absolutely sovereign. Your all-wise Father, who knows how to give good gifts to his children, has ordained this very moment in history. And he has ordained that you be the shepherds of his precious flock at this time in history. He has not only ordained this dark hour, but he has ordained the men for this hour. And you who labor faithfully in the hard but glorious work of preaching and teaching and shepherding the flock, you're it. If only you'll rise to the occasion, not retreat from this depraved culture. But go in to this depraved culture and tell a world drunk on its own arrogance that God is God and that they are not. That Jesus is Lord and that Caesar is not. And to declare that the, that, and to declare to the professing church that the gospel is sufficient and that Marx and Gramsci and Foucault and Derrida are not. But for that, you will need unashamed endurance. That's the title of the message today, Unashamed Endurance. The author of Hebrews says that very thing. You have need of endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. The Apostle Paul's pastoral charge to Timothy includes the terse exhortation, Endure Hardship. 
In 2 Corinthians 6, 4, Paul writes of what it means to be a minister of God, a servant of the new covenant. He says, in everything, commending ourselves as ministers of God in much endurance. Those who think and speak and act and look like Jesus in this world that hated and mocked and crucified Jesus will be marked by the afflictions of Jesus. The Christian life, and especially the Christian ministry, is characterized by suffering for Jesus' sake. We have been called to die daily for the sake of the church, to lay down our lives in a kind of living death so that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ might be built up and sanctified unto the glory of God. And so we have need of endurance We do not have need of glorious beginnings in ministry. We do not have need of good intentions in ministry. We need to be men who can weather the storm. We need to be men who are faithful to Christ's bride, even when faced with the pressures and the afflictions and the demands and the discouragements and even the attacks of ministry. So the question that I want to ask today is how? Where are you going to get the resources to persist in joyful, enduring ministry, even in the midst of affliction? Where will you get the strength to walk in the kind of sacrificial selflessness that is required of the under-shepherd? What spiritual weapons do you have in your arsenal with which to battle the temptation of cowardice? of despair, of shipwreck? How will you press on in unashamed endurance to Christ and his church? The answer comes in our text for this afternoon, a familiar one, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, where Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We do not lose our courage in the face of conflict and difficulty and opposition. We do not give ourselves over to despair and give up the fight to which we have been called. We do not give up the task which the Lord has entrusted to us. We fulfill our ministry. We go on speaking the gospel. We press on in the labor of faithful sermon preparation. We persevere in the counseling room. We issue that needed rebuke. We confront that doctrinal error. We visit the bedside of the dying. We comfort the grieving widow. Brothers, we do not lose heart. We endure. But how? But how? Paul explains in verses 16 to 18, He writes, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And in this text, Paul lays out three keys to endurance in ministry. 
Three key truths that explain how the faithful new covenant minister does not lose heart in the midst of conflict and opposition, but presses on in endurance. And the first key to endurance is, number one, we must draw strength from the proper power. Look again at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. If you're going to endure the kind of affliction that is promised to be yours in Christian ministry, you need to draw strength from the proper power. You can't labor in the strength of the outer man that is wasting away and decaying. You need to press on in endurance by drawing from the spiritual strength that is renewed in the inner man. The outer man, the physical body, is wearing out because the cancer of sin has infected the very fiber of this natural world. And it causes the whole of creation to groan, Romans 8 says, to decay around us. And so along with the rest of the creation, our outer man is decaying. No matter what we might do to forestall it, our bodies wear out and we all die. That's true of all of us by nature. But in the case of the Christian minister, that process is only accelerated, intensified, because ours is the body which carries about the dying of Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.10. Ours is the body which bears the brand marks of Jesus, Galatians 6, 17. In Paul's case, he was in constant danger. He was hungry and thirsty. He was without food, homeless. He weathered the cold and exposure of the elements. He endured numbers of sleepless nights. On top of that, he could say that he'd been beaten with uh, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times, 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, one stone, three times shipwrecked. And on top of it all, he knew the pressure of concern for the spiritual welfare of the churches. This man was decaying. He was wasting away. You say, that sounds depressing. And yet Paul says, we do not lose heart. How can we face the reality that our outer man, along with the rest of this world, is decaying and yet not lose heart? Answer, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. The inner man is the heart, the soul, the spiritual aspect of the believer that has been recreated in Christ and is being progressively conformed into his image. It is the everlasting imperishable aspect of the believer that has been rebirthed in regeneration and is now being increasingly strengthened in sanctification. It's the new self of Ephesians 4.24, which, according to that verse, in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Paul is saying, though on the outside I suffered debilitation and decay in accordance with life in a fallen world, accelerated by my great suffering for Christ's sake, I don't lose heart. Because at the very same time as my outer man decays, God the Holy Spirit renews in my heart a kind of spiritual life and vitality and vigor that only excites me to press on all the more. 
I may be losing physical strength every day, but God's mercies are new every morning, and I am gaining spiritual strength day by day. And that is what matters to me, Paul says. And I want you to notice that these are simultaneous actions. Both verbs are in the present tense, which connote continuous action. Our outer man is presently continuously decaying, and at the very same time, our inner man is presently continuously being renewed. And as one commentator put it, the simultaneity of these processes suggests their proportionality. In other words, it's not simply that these two processes occur together, it's that the one occurs in proportion to the other. The more that the outer man decays as a result of laying down your life in ministry, the more the inner man is renewed. You say, how does that work? Well, the scars that we bear, these are the brand marks of Christ. This is the very dying of Jesus that we bear around in our body. And there is a fellowship, a communion, a unique bond of intimacy that Paul shares with Christ because of this common suffering. In Philippians 3.10, he calls it the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Suffering for Christ's sake opens up unique opportunities for seeing and knowing and experiencing Christ in ways that we would never know otherwise. Samuel Rutherford wrote this. He said, if your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed, for he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among thorns. Do not be afraid at suffering for Christ, for he has a sweet place for a sufferer. And that sweet place is by his side, in his presence, in the light of his countenance, mediated through his word and his people. As we suffer for his sake and run to him for comfort and pray to him for relief and follow him in the example that he left for us, what happens? We behold his glory in fresh ways. And beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are transformed more and more into his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 To be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, Ephesians 3.16, is to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up all to all the fullness of God. The knowledge of Christ's love that is uniquely experienced in the fellowship of his sufferings as the Spirit grants this renewal of the inner man is a presentation of the glory of Christ to the eyes of our heart by which we are transformed into his image. And the spiritual vitality and strength that is birthed in that process is sufficient to sustain the weariest of ministers' hearts. See, the key to endurance and ministry for Paul was to draw strength from the proper power, from the spirit-renewed strength of the inner man. 
And so, brothers, when you are tired, when you are weak, when you are drained of strength, when you look in the mirror and realize that the daily pressure of concern for the spiritual health of the body of Christ has given you wrinkles, when the long days of counseling and the long nights of intercessory prayer for the saints have given you bags under your eyes, when you're exasperated from admonishing the unruly, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with everyone, as Paul commands in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it's caused your hair to turn gray, or even worse, to fall out. When the strain of difficult, tense conversations with agitated unbelievers or even immature believers has sapped your mental and emotional energy to the point where you're just physically worn out, when your outer man is decaying, you will endure because you are going to draw strength from the proper power. You won't look for strength from the outer man who's wasting away. You won't gauge your ability by what the outer man feels like. You will look for strength from the inner man whom the Holy Spirit of God is renewing and strengthening every day. The inner man to whom the Spirit presents fresh displays of the glory of Christ. And grants communion with Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. The inner man who holds this life loosely because he hopes in the life to come. Who possesses an indomitable joy in the glory of God that fuels endurance for even the most taxing kind of ministry. Dear friends, you will not lose heart. You will endure because you know the key key of drawing strength from the proper power. There's a second key to endurance in ministry. Number two, we must maintain the proper perspective. We must maintain the proper perspective. And we see this in verse 17. Paul writes, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You will endure any and every affliction that the world, flesh, and Satan will throw at you in the path of Christian ministry when you can look at the present with the eye of eternity. When you can see your afflictions from an eternal perspective. And this is just one of the most precious verses in all of Scripture. The contrastive parallelism in this verse is so elegant that it's almost poetic. Notice, momentary light affliction is contrasted with an eternal weight of glory. You have a contrast of duration, momentary versus eternal, a contrast of significance, light versus weight, and then you have a contrast of substance, affliction versus glory. And I want to comment on that final contrast first. What will make all the difference in our ability to persevere in enduring devotion to Christ's church, in unashamed endurance, even in the midst of affliction, is a spiritual apprehension of the glory that will be ours in heaven. And glory is absolutely central and essential to the Christian life. That certainly becomes plain as one reads these chapters, 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. In these two chapters... Paul discusses some of the most theologically significant truths in all of Scripture. And as he does, he uses the word glory 17 times. 
between chapter 3, verse 7, and here at the end of chapter 4, glory shows up on average of more than one out of every two verses. In chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, the nature of the old and new covenants, the, the transitioning of the redemptive plan of God from age to age, is defined chiefly in terms of glory. In chapter 4, verse 4, the total depravity of man is defined in terms of blindness to glory. In chapter 4, verse 6, the nature of God's sovereign work of regeneration is cast in terms of opening the heart, to opening the eyes of the heart to see his glory shining in the face of his son. Chapter 3, verse 18, we're told that the process of our progressive sanctification is a function of our beholding the glory of the Lord. It's only as we see glory that we are then transformed into the image of that glory. Chapter 4, verse 15, the glory of God is the very bedrock foundation of all our efforts in ministry. And then here in verse 17, the eternal weight of glory is our all-consuming passion that causes the severest of our afflictions to seem momentary and light. This is what has been designed to make us tick. Just as a car engine runs on gasoline, The regenerate man has been recreated in Christ to run on glory. The glory of God shining in the face of Christ is to be what consumes us, what animates us, what energizes us. It's what we are to long for and set our affections upon and pursue more than anything in the world. Glory is not just the icing on the cake of the Christian life. It's not just a consolation prize, a nice byproduct of a dutiful life. No, it is to be the very focus of our lives. We are, in a very real sense, to be glory hounds. It's just that the glory that we pursue is not our own, but God's. This glory is so weighty, so significant, so substantial that when you put that glory side by side with the most severe kinds of suffering that this life can bring, there is no comparison. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 17. He says that that glory is far beyond all comparison. Just a great phrase in the Greek, hyperbolein ace hyperbolein, hyperbole unto hyperbole. Paul says that the glory that we will enjoy in the presence of God in heaven is beyond all possibility of overstatement or exaggeration. With respect to its corresponding affliction, this glory is beyond all measure and all proportion, exceeding all bounds whatsoever. Paul just searches for language to try to conceptualize this ineffable, unspeakable glory. He takes another shot at it in Romans 8, 18, where he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You ask, what glory is that? What glory will be revealed to us? What is this glory that so dwarfs the significance of our afflictions? It's precisely what our high priest prayed for in John 17, 24. When he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. 
And so if regeneration is having the eyes of your heart opened to see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ, and if sanctification is progressively beholding more and more of that glory, though only through a glass darkly, then the consummation is going to heaven to see that glory face to face and eye to eye. To look upon the glory of God shining in the face of our dear Lord Jesus himself in his immediate presence, unhindered by any trace of sin. Jonathan Edwards wrote, Oh, how infinitely great will the privilege and happiness of such be who at that time shall go to be with Christ in his glory. It is the privilege of being with Christ in heaven where he sits on the right hand of God in the glory of the King and God of the angels and of the whole universe shining forth as the great light, the bright sun of that world of glory there to dwell in the full, constant, an everlasting view of his beauty and brightness there most freely and intimately to converse with him and fully to enjoy his love as his friends and spouse there to have fellowship with him in the infinite pleasure and joy he has in the enjoyment of his father there to sit with him on his throne and reign with him in the possession of all things and partake with him in the joy and glory of his victory over his enemies and the advancement of his cause in the world and to join with him in joyful songs of praise to his father and their father, to his God and their God forever and ever. Paul says, when you compare that coming glory with your present affliction, you'll recognize that there is no comparison. He calls his affliction momentary. You say, wait a minute, what part of Paul's affliction was momentary? The entire New Testament is shot through with the chronicling of Paul's sufferings. I mean, didn't he just say, chapter 4, verse 10, that he's always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus? And in verse 11, he's constantly being delivered over to death. The answer is yes. Paul's afflictions were momentary. They only last a lifetime. Afflictions, brothers, are only for this life. They will not follow us into eternity. And when we view the hardships of this life against the backdrop of the everlasting joy of the eternal weight of glory, we understand that our affliction is momentary. James 4.14 says that our human life is just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. It's like going outside on a cold morning and huffing into the air, and you see your breath for a moment, and then it vanishes away. Our affliction is lifelong. As we said at the beginning, suffering characterizes the Christian life. But because we have the proper perspective, we understand our affliction is momentary, and so we don't lose heart. He goes on. He calls his affliction light. The Greek word is elaphros. It means insignificant, a, a weightless trifle. Fluff is one gloss that you'll find in the lexicons. And it just amazes me that Paul could say this. It'd be one thing if I wrote that. You'd say, Mike, who are you to call my suffering fluff? Why don't you try bearing this burden? What have you ever suffered in your life? 
And I might understand that objection, but I didn't write this. Paul wrote this. Five times 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods. Second Corinthians 1.8, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. See, Paul was no stoic. This wasn't some sort of mind over matter thing where he convinced himself there was just no such thing as pain and suffering. And so it all just went away. No, the Christian is not unmoved by the sorrows of this life in a fallen world. The Christian, and especially the Christian minister, feels the sorrows of this life deeply. Certainly Paul felt those afflictions and those sorrows. You say, well, then how could he call his afflictions light, fluff? Because on one side of the scale, he put his afflictions. But on the other side of the scale, He put the eternal weight of glory that was sure to be his. I don't think you could have looked at Paul's back and concluded that his affliction was light. A rod is a rod. A whip is a whip. And the same thing is true for our afflictions. It's not that they're not real. It's not that they're imaginary or superfluous. Fatigue is fatigue. Grief is grief. The pain of betrayal is the pain of betrayal. But with the proper perspective, the weightiness of that glory that we will enjoy in eternity makes all the suffering we experience here feel light and trifling and insignificant. Rutherford says again, Oh, what I owe. Oh, what I owe to the file, the hammer, and the furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. And as we look back to our pains and suffering, we shall see that suffering not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home. In heaven. He says, if we could smell of heaven and our country above, our crosses would not bite us. Brothers, I want you to think about the pains that this life of ministry has brought you. Think of the dull ache of the soul that sometimes accompanies this glorious work that we have been called to. Misunderstandings. Accusations, betrayal, those things that make you wonder if you just ought to give up. One night home in the presence of your Savior, finally free from the sin that presently keeps you from worshiping Him as He's worthy of. One night home in unhindered communion with your Shepherd King. And you will exclaim from the top of your lungs, it was worth it all. It was worth it all. It was worth all of the online hit pieces. It was worth all of the private betrayals. It was worth all of the lawsuits, the jail sentences, whatever it is. Here I am in the presence of my king. Now to worship him as he is worthy of being worshiped in a way 
that this poor, lisping, stammering tongue could never give in the present life. Just one night home. And I've got to say one more thing about this magnificent verse. I want you to notice the word producing in verse 17. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. See, glory is not merely that which follows affliction. Affliction produces this glory. There is a directly proportional relationship between our suffering for Christ's sake and the glory we will enjoy in heaven. Now, that's not to say that our suffering is somehow meritorious, but there is a directly proportional relationship between suffering and glory. Peter says it in 1 Peter 4.13. He says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? Because, verse 14, the spirit of glory rests on you. Romans eight seventeen. we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. See, the causal relationship there, suffering produces glory. And the precious implication of that is that absolutely no affliction in your life if suffered in the path of obedience to Christ and endured for his sake, none of that suffering is meaningless. There is no such thing as senseless suffering for Christ. Because every ounce of affliction that you endure for the sake of the gospel is increasing your capacity to apprehend the fullness of the eternal weight of God's glory both in eternity and even now in the present age into which eternity has broken through. You see, this is not just pie-in-the-sky religious talk. It is, I am not saying that we just bite down hard and bear our afflictions because one day they'll be over. No, there is joy to be had right now in the midst of your sufferings because you know that these very sufferings for righteousness sake are actually working for your benefit. This is what Paul meant in Romans 8 when he said that we are more than conquerors. How do you be more than a conqueror? Well, a conqueror subdues and defeats an enemy. One who is more than a conqueror defeats an enemy and then presses that enemy into service to work for his benefit. And so in the face of affliction, when you feel that dull pain of the decay of the outer man, and in the midst of that sorrow, you can be always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians 6.10, because you know that that very affliction is being pressed into your service and is producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison it's not that our souls remain untouched by the burdens of this life it's that the eye of faith creates a new perspective and with that proper perspective we understand that not even the heaviest affliction can outweigh the everlasting fullness of the glory that our affliction itself is producing for us and so we don't lose heart But I want you to notice something immensely important. This amazing reality that the believer's affliction produces glory is not automatic. There's a condition. 
an action we must engage in if we are to know our afflictions as light and momentary. Our affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Look at it. While we look, not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's the third key to endurance in ministry that Paul gives us in this passage. First, we must draw strength from the proper power. Second, we must maintain the proper perspective. And three, we must keep the proper preoccupation. And in fact, we only have access to the proper power. We only have access to the proper perspective when we keep the proper preoccupation. While we look Afflictions are momentary and light while we look. We do not lose heart while we look. The fundamental key to the Christian's endurance amidst the most harrowing kinds of affliction is spiritual sight. The word is scopeo, from which we get the optical word scope. The word means to focus one's attention on something to give special scrutiny to, or to be thoughtfully aware of, to look intently. The force of the verb emphasizes fixity of gaze and attention in contrast to a fleeting or casual glance. The only one who is going to know the spiritual strength that comes from the daily renewal of their inner man by the Holy Spirit The only one who will endure lifelong severe affliction as momentary and light is the one whose eyes are absolutely fixed and fastened on the Lord Jesus Christ upon that which is unseen. What do you mean, Paul? How is it even possible to see what is unseen? And the answer to that is, we see the unseen with the spiritual eyes of faith. That's the very definition of faith that's given to us in Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. That word conviction is the word elenkos from the verb elenko, which means to expose, to reveal, to bring to light. The author Hebrews says that faith is the exposing, the revelation of that which is not seen. Faith is the spiritual sight by which that which is naturally unseen and invisible becomes perceptible to the eyes of the soul. Paul will say just a few verses after our text in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk by faith, not by sight. And what he means there is not that faith is some sort of blind leap into the dark, but rather that the true Christian walks by the spiritual sight of faith and not by the physical sight of our natural eyes. He's saying what he'll eventually say in chapter 5, verse 16, that we recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't evaluate anyone or anything by mere externals. We behold that which is unseen with the spiritual sight of faith. And that's precisely what the false apostles were leading the Corinthians to do when Paul wrote this letter. By any external evaluation, Paul's life was a colossal waste. He was a rising star in Pharisaic Judaism. He had the best upbringing, the best education, 
was well-respected, learned, had a good job, a comfortable income. And now look at him. Whipped, stoned, bouncing from prison to prison, from beating to beating. A decayed, shriveled up shell of the once promising young rabbi who threw away his honorable life for a life of suffering and shame. That's what the natural eyes saw. But Paul says, oh, but if you could look beneath the surface of this decaying outer man, if you could behold with the eyes of faith the things which are unseen, you would see a vigorous, vibrant, renewed, rejuvenated man rejoicing in the sight of an eternal weight of glory that is his inheritance to be laid hold of all before long. And that is what we must look to as well. As we look around us and behold with our natural eyes the great wickedness of this world, the godlessness of our culture, the degradation of education, the corruption of our governments, as we look around us and behold a church full of sinners making slow progress in grace, needing constant and consistent motivation to pursue the things of God, a church weakened by pragmatism and indifference, as we look to ourselves and see a decaying man worn out by the responsibilities of life and ministry, we need to raise our eyes to heaven and set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. I wonder if you would turn with me for a moment to Second Kings chapter 6. Second Kings chapter 6 starting in verse 8, speaks of the king of Aram in his wars against Israel and his plot to capture Elisha the prophet. Second Kings 6, 8. Now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Arameans are coming down there. King of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. Now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. There's no mole, there's just a prophet. So he said, go and see where he is, that I may send and take him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. He sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Here it is, we're outnumbered. Elisha's servant is saying, We better run. What's Elisha say? So he answered, do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. 
in the midst of any given affliction, if we look only to the things which are seen, we will feel like Elisha's servant who saw only an army of Aramean cavalry and chariots surrounding his city. But in that moment, Christ himself, by his spirit, looks to you and says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And without the eyes of faith, that sounds ludicrous. Look around, Lord. I am surrounded. LGBTQ and onerous legal requirements and enemies within the professing church and slanderous accusations and undermining uh, betrayals. But what did Elisha pray for his servant? Again, verse 17, you pray, O Lord, I pray, open my eyes that I may see. And if we could only fix our gaze on the things which are unseen, we would behold the glory of Christ himself with the eyes of faith. We would see the glory and the fellowship and the communion with him which is promised to us in the fullness of heaven and which we may enjoy, beginning to enjoy it even now. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we would be transformed. We would be like Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty five, who chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was what? Looking to the reward. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, how? writer of Hebrews, how did Moses endure unashamedly? What was the key to his unashamed endurance? For he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Men, do you see him? Have you looked away from your own righteousness, from your own false pleasures in sin, and looked upon this crucified and risen Savior the one who has swallowed up the sin of his people, the sea of wrath that threatened to drown you, swallowed up by your Savior in those three awful hours on Calvary. Have you looked upon him by faith, who upward you look and see him there, who made an end to all your sin? Behold him there, my perfect, spotless righteousness, whose good works have merited for you the very favor of God that your good works could only merit the the worthless garments of filthy menstrual cloths. Have you looked upon him for the salvation of your own soul? Don't flatter yourself, brothers. Don't flatter yourself that in this, in a group this large, that we are all brothers. Examine yourself. Look, look to yourselves, but don't stay looking at yourselves. Look to this glorious Savior. And if you haven't put all of your hope and all of your trust in his life, in his death, and his resurrection for your salvation, do it now. You don't have to be an unconverted minister a day longer. Christ will yet receive you. And though you may need to step down from certain areas of ministry, 
you'll walk with the Christ who satisfies the deepest desires of your heart. You walk in the freedom of integrity. He will be your companion. And that's greater than any praise, any thanks for a great sermon that you could possibly imagine. This this calls us to look to see him who is unseen with the eyes of faith, first of all, for our salvation. But for those of us, and oh, I pray it's every single one of us who has looked to Christ for salvation. Look unto him for the strength of endurance. John Bunyan sat in his jail cell for what would eventually be 12 years because he wouldn't surrender the purity of the gospel to the Church of England. And years later, he would write about what gave him strength to endure that trial. He wrote this, I was made to see that if ever I would suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life. Even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon a God that is invisible. He had to live upon a God who is invisible. He had to pass a sentence of death upon everything and everyone in his life that was visible to stop looking at those things which are seen and to live by constantly looking to the God who is invisible. Bunyan saw the glory of God revealed in the face of Christ. He beheld with unveiled face the glory of the Lord. And you know what? He endured. Brother pastors, look to and live upon the God who is invisible. Draw strength from the proper power. Maintain the proper perspective. Keep the proper preoccupation. Open your Bibles in the morning and look for Jesus. Pour out your heart in prayer because you want more of Jesus. Do all of the duties of the ministry looking to fuel your faith with the knowledge of your Savior. And as we behold his glory, we will be progressively transformed into that same image. God will conform us into the image of his son and we will be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man such that even as our outer man decays, our inner man will be renewed day by day. But only while we look. So look to Christ, behold his glory. And find in him all the endurance that you could ever need to press on in joyful, unashamed devotion to Christ's church, even in the midst of affliction. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you you accomplish this great thing in our hearts? Would you perform in our hearts what you have revealed to us by your spirit and your word? Would you sanctify Christ Jesus in our hearts as Lord so that whatever affliction comes on the path of obedience, whether grandiose and romantic, like going to jail for Christ, or whether small and unseen, like being faithful in the counseling room, laboring another hour in the text, visiting that widow or sick one, ministering by their side, that no one sees but you, 
Grant that we would endure it. Grant that we would follow after you, Lord Jesus, in the path of affliction for the sake of the edification and, and, and building up of Christ's church, of your church, so that we would be men who bring honor to Christ. Our great desire is not to endure for the sake of endurance, not to make a show of some sort of rousing, manly, rah-rah, let's endure, let's stand against the, the enemies. We care only for your assessment, for your well done, for your honor and glory. And what are the, what are the frowns of a few fellow mortals when we can behold the smile of our master and king? Lord, would you, would you make that smile the great treasure of every man in this room and within the sound of my voice? Would, they, would you grant that they would just rejoice at the prospect of laboring deeply, suffering severely for the smile of the master? Would you grant us the grace to return to you in worship what you are worthy of? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.